Hey, Rohan, what's cooking, man? Are you excited about the Super Bowl coming up this weekend? I am very excited. I have all my money bet on Kansas City, so hopefully they'll win. And, you know, they've been doing good the whole season, so I have high hopes for them. Well, I guess as long as Mahomes doesn't, uh, you know, plays to his full capacity, I can't imagine uh, it being a tight game, but who knows? Like, we're not a betting people. And I know we bet once in a while just for fun, but... Oh, by the way, speaking of it, uh, did you join the office uh, Paris square square bet competition? Where I did. I bought five squares myself. Damn, that sounds like fun. Yeah, uh, Ronnie reached out and uh, he talked. He was excited about squares, and I never heard much about it. So, for listeners who haven't played this office squares pool or Super Bowl squares pool, what you do is you start with um, hundred squares and uh, pull up money and each square is worth you know a buck or 50 cents or free if you want and then uh, you you buy some each of each square so um, and you can buy one square 10 squares five squares whatever you want and once all the squares are bought the game commissioner or the guy who's running the pool will assign random numbers to each of the rows and columns so for example one of my random number one of the uh, coordinates I got is zero and three. So, you know, anyway, uh, to make long story short, uh, if Kansas City scores zero or any score ending with number zero and Eagles score any any score ending with number three at the end of first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, I make money. So basically they take the pool, break it into four quarters. So it started off as almost like organic and uh, then you know, we got all nerded out about it, didn't we, Rohan? We did. We were looking up the probabilities and statistics from past games and predictions by the coaches and various websites. So when I was looking at it, it seemed, according to the site, that I had a pretty good probability as I picked a, a square that was zero and zero. So, oh, yeah, you got zero, zero. So I guess at the end of first quarter, if uh, the game is tied at zero, you'll make 125 bucks. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, or if end of second quarter, what if the game is scored at 2010 and you make another 125 bucks? Who knows? You might end up making the score might be tied at 30, 40 or whatever, and you'll be making. <laughs> I mean, I have a safe because there's that zero, and you know, it's either three points or you get seven points. So, right. So, I was actually, I saw the link you sent and uh, it showed that zero, zero had like 26% mm-hmm. probability. Yep. And it's like so interesting that something so stupid, this squares game that we never thought was any serious, they are like first uh, first quarter odds, second quarter odds, third quarter odds, and the whole concept of data is so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, there, there's a whole fandom about data gathering for various, like, uh, yeah, various, pretty much everything, like sports or yeah, anything really. I'm pretty sure we can find various uh, reasons why people are always collecting data since it is important yeah. and that's how we improve i know you're into video games like when was the last time you nerded out about data after college um what was the last time you what was the other data collection effort you've done um probably it would be call of duty and i would do research and data on which guns are the best and which attachments to put so i can have a gun that's meant for long distance or have this loadout that's meant for short distance or more like uh snipers so I, you know, just evaluate my play style and then the data from various streamers and make my own um, assumptions and, uh, yeah, get improved in the game. Oh, crap. I mean, speaking of data, we completely 
are keeping our great host waiting here. Let's jump on the interview. Sure, let's bring her in. We have a fantastic guest on the podcast today, uh, Darlene Opfer. Darlene is a vice president and director of the RAND Education and Labor Research Division at RAND. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND is widely respected for operating independent of political and commercial pressures. Darlene has conducted policy research studies for several local, state, and national governments on issues that affect teachers and schools, including recruitment and retention, professional development, and impact of policies on teacher practice. Darlene, welcome to Illuminated Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So Darlene, this is such a great conversation. I have a lot of respect for RAND, um, RAND education and RAND Corporation in general, because uh, for listeners uh, who don't know who RAND Corporation is, I highly recommend you go to rand.org. Uh, they are an independent think tank, but unlike uh, other liberal and uh, non-liberal think tanks. Uh, they are not political. They're not trying to lobby the government to do some one thing or another. In fact, uh, from what I understand, when a law, when lawmakers want a completely neutral analysis on something, anything from uh, nuclear weapons or, or climate change or education, obviously, or defense, RAND is one of the three or four corporations that they reach out to to ask for a completely independent council. Uh, it's amazing to talk to you, Darlene. Um, so uh, Darlene, before I jump into it, do you have any additional color to add or if I misstated anything about Rand Corporation, please correct me. No, no, you did a good job uh, summarizing kind of the, the highlights of what we do. I mean, I think you mentioned this sort of uh, people come to us because of our neutrality. I think the thing that is important for people to know is, you know, we go where the data leads. Um, sometimes that makes, you know, we, we have policymakers come to us and we say, well, your idea is wrong. <laughs> According right. to the data, you're wrong and we have to disappoint them. And I think, you know, over time, we're celebrating our 75th anniversary this year. Over time, um, you know, people take, we're wrong sometimes, we're right sometimes. Okay, Rand's a straight shooter. And so we can rely on them. Yeah, I'm sure the lawmakers don't want to hear about facts. <laughs> because whether you're liberal or Republican, it's like, so for example, let's say you're a climate change advocate. Uh, when Rand comes and says, you know, again, I'm not saying it's true, but if they give any piece of information that is not 100% in alignment with that advocacy, they're like, well, you know, maybe your biases are wrong or something. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I, uh, I've had a, a senior colleague tell me, you know, sort of at the end of your career at RAND, if you've upset both sides of an argument, you've done your job. Yeah, <laughs> because, exactly. Because you've always stayed close to the facts, regardless of, you know, pressure from other people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I like about, uh, I know there's, when I didn't know much about when I came to US and 25 years ago, one of my biggest concern was India has this you know, hundreds of political parties, and it's kind of nice to uh, be able to find a middle ground. Um, but it was so ill-informed because I feel like even though we hate this two-party system, but at least there are two positions to take on everything. Um, you know, and the unfortunate, the truth of the matter is both the positions are equally wrong in that, like, the truth is always in the middle, whether it's gun control versus, you know, guns for all, or you know, abortions for all versus 
100% control on uh, women's rights. It, the truth is never 100% on one side, but unfortunately, the two sides are set in their roles. As It's almost like actors, if you will, saying, this is my position, this is your position. And somehow the country figures out how to find a middle ground. I feel like it's a beautiful thing to do. Am I misspeaking there? No, no. It's, I just think that, um, you know, we've become increasingly concerned that the divide is getting wider and wider. And people are now questioning facts or they can't agree on facts, like basic things. Um, and for uh, an organization like RAND that, you know, we dwell in facts, that creates almost an existential threat in the sense that, like, if people don't believe us, if, if they don't believe facts, then how can we, you know, make an impact and help them make better decisions? Well, that brings us to this episode, because uh, if you don't believe facts, you better believe data, right? <laughs> uh, so people can say whatever they want. Again, we have seen in the last couple of years about uh, whether FDA, you know, you can call them lying or misinforming or misunderstanding. I don't care. The government, the body that gets billions of dollars of funding from government has made many unacceptable mistakes. And that caused us to a point where saying, well, when if they get, if they say we should get a fifth booster, I'm like, fuck it, I'm not going to get another booster. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because you said the first vaccine is all we need. And then second vaccine is all you need. And now it's like fifth booster now? No, this, you've lost your chance to convince me that you're reliable. And that gets us to this concept of, okay, if something like that happens, yeah. Send in, then FDA can present as a data and say, this is the data. Yes, we have been wrong, but it has been right with, I don't know, 30 million people versus one, 100,000 people. So the data gets us past this information nightmare that we're living in. Am I correct in that? And how, what role does RAND play in bringing data to the forefront of the conversation? Sure. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, the example that you gave illustrates a, a problem that we have, which is people don't understand how science progresses. And so it wasn't, you know, I sort of think about what happened in uh, the pandemic around vaccines. It wasn't that the FDA or the CDC were wrong. It's they were making the judgment based on the evidence available at that time. Um, right. That's how all you know all of us who do research that's but the only do. difference is they tell it with conviction and they they don't go back and say sorry we were wrong uh, that is the mistake you know yeah, I, yeah, would, yeah, but... I would much rather like fauci to come or anybody i'm again i'm a pro fauci guy i'm pro vaccination i believe in all the medicines but i would much rather have fds have some humility and say you know this is what we thought we screwed well, up I I take your point, but I don't think that I would say that they were wrong. What I would say is they should have said at the time, based on the evidence that we have, mm -hmm. we have a very narrow set of evidence right now. These vaccines have only been tested. You know, it's we've rapidly gone through testing with them. It's very narrow. Based on what we know right now, here's our here's what we would you know say to do. Then you know, over a year, we get more data in, and we start to see more patterns. And so, okay, yeah. we need to revise. We need to revise what we told you because now we know more about what's happened with these vaccines than we did before. I agree, but I think we all we almost act again, staying on the FDA uh, thing. We almost act as though some of these things that FDA was ever right about everything. 
you know, in no, that, like, it's like, we have made so many bad mistakes, you know, whether it is, you know, allowing cocaine to be a, you know, whatever, uh, a drug to help or drug, not just drug, a tonic to help people to, I don't know, um, have a better day or how use x-rays in everything from um, a saloon to whatever, you know, we, FDA is one place where they can actually be humble and say, yes, we've made a lot of mistakes. Our data proves that we have made more mistakes than being right. So well, builds I mean, on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would go back. I mean, I go back to the sort of point I started with is one of the things that both, you know, the FDA needs to do, the CDC RAN needs to do, other research organizations, we need to help people understand how science emerges. Like, I mean, you know, yes, we all, you know, every researcher needs to be humble because at any one period of time, we are only operating on the data and the that we have exactly. available. Something can happen in the future, you know, we can collect more data and realize, oh my God, you know, the, now that we have data on 50 million people, the patterns look different than they were on a thousand people. Yeah, I mean, I think that is where it's very interesting that RAND plays a role because you're absolutely correct. Because even the data collection, as much as we talk about it, we only collect the data to prove our hypothesis. We never collect the data to disprove our hypothesis. Uh, I don't know, no, no. Unless it's I a pure scientific method. A pure scientific yeah. method follows that way, but lobbyists or uh, unless, uh, that's yeah, true. let's talk about, let's talk about RAND because do you collect the data to prove your thesis and disprove your thesis or completely uh, neutral fashion? Yeah, completely neutral fashion. In fact, I mean, there's, we're part of a movement amongst researchers um, who are trying to like, be able to state our hypothesis in advance, be able to state what research methods we're gonna use in advance, because one of the things that happens and it happens amongst lobbyists and some think tanks that take a you know political position is they are looking, I mean, they're they're called, you know, we call it phishing. Uh, they're phishing for, for data that supports their position. So what happens is they change their analysis to like come up with the right outcome Whereas if you have to state ahead of time, I'm doing this study, here's my hypothesis, here's the data I'm collecting, and here's how I'm going to analyze it, you can't fish. Right. Like, you just have to take what that analysis gives you. Um, you can't start, like, messing with your methods to try to influence the outcome. Okay, um, this is going to be the last comment about FDA then, because the <laughs> issue is like you're saying everything Rand is doing great and I want to talk about that. But the point is FDA never actually does the data gathering. Like if you look at when an opioid drug manufacturer comes in and says opioid drug, whatever, like oxycodone mm -hmm. is 100% effective or 99.99% effective, FDA never validates whether the data was is correct or you know, they basically depend on the company doing their analysis. They depend right. on company providing credentials saying it has been independently verified by these three scientists. And probably no, those three scientists are on their payroll. So yeah, how well, do we get, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not being yeah. Joe Rogan on this. I'm just saying FDA doesn't actually do the independent analysis. That's why people like Rand are important in that you, we want completely independent people to say, Yes, this is what the pharmaceutical company is representing. 
I want an independent litigator sure. to review this data. How do we get there? And how does RAND, how can RAND play the role in this level of analysis? I mean, I, I sort of um, will say two things. I mean, one is, yes, the, the necessity of having an independent um, person sort of looking over the shoulder of, uh, you know, people who are collecting data for a particular purpose and have a stake in the outcome, if you will, becomes really important. And that is a role that RAN plays um, all the time um, in lots of different areas. Um, at the same time, I will say that collecting data at sort of a national level or even an international level across multiple countries or multiple states is really difficult. You almost right. always have to rely. I mean, even if you think about like outside of drug manufacturers, even just, you know, our federal system, it means the states are collecting the data and feeding it to the feds all the time. And right. in the states, you know, like in schools, districts are collecting the data. They feed it to the states and the states feed it to, you know, the U.S. Department of Education or the U.S. Department of Labor. We always have to rely on other people to collect data, the question is, can you put enough controls in place and structure in place that you get the best data you can? Sure. Yeah, I think that's the key. Again, uh, let's not talk about FDA anymore. Let's talk about education institutions uh, because I think, I know that's your focus. So Rohan, why don't we let you lead with it? Because I know that you have the, you had the pleasure of yeah. working with different instructors, faculty <laughs> members, professors at GSU. What was your experience like um, with respect to your professors in college? Um, are all professors the best professors you could ever have? <laughs> well, I mean, in my experience, that does vary from professor to professor sometimes. And then also, also depends on the student itself and the best way they learn. But just for me to tell my experiences and my, um, you know, background. So, yes, when I went to Georgia State, there were some professors that I really enjoyed. They would make the class entertaining, fun. And then that's like one of the best ways for the students to absorb all the knowledge because they'll remember, oh, this professor did this activity or this experiment and they got the students engaged and didn't make it, in terms of a better word, boring or lame. Mm -hmm. They made it entertaining and fun. And I feel like that's one of the best ways to learn compared to other professors I had where they're just, oh, boring, strict, more textbook driven. So like the issue that um, I wanna talk about is you guys have all these different practices and everything, and you guys do all these case studies and research studies, but when it comes to applying that, what are the ways you apply that? Because each student is um, taught differently. Like me personally, I'm not mm -hmm. a textbook learner. I just, I learn better by how Karen would describe it, jumping into the fire and trial and error, and then learning mm -hmm. what I'm doing wrong, learning what I'm doing right. And I also learn backwards so the answer is already there and i'm trying to figure out how you get to that answer as well so like how do you identify which students need which help and how you can help them based off your data that you collected in the studies you have done yeah so that's a really difficult question and the reason why it's so difficult is because despite the fact that teaching how people teach and the quality of their teaching is like hugely important i mean it is so important for you know, students, for families, for the U.S. in general, we know very little about it. Like we, the the knowledge we have about what makes good teaching is so small compared to how important it is. So that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. So right. um, just, it's 
unbelievable. Um, the other thing I think is, and you kind of point this out, is that you know one size does not fit all. So part of the problem of improving teaching quality in the U.S. and frankly all over the world is that you know you can't just teach a teacher to you know like if we knew if there was one size fit all, you could teach a teacher and say teach this way all the time and you will get the best outcomes. And that's just it's just not true. You know right. the 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 interchange between a teacher and a student is so dynamic. Um, it takes a lot of training and experience for a teacher to be able to sort of read a student, read where they are, how they learn, and figure out what that means in terms of their interaction with that student. Um, and that's very difficult. And not many teachers do that well all the time. Right. And also differs between a... And it's kind of very weird because when you look at the K through 20 spectrum or K through 16, at least, it feels like when you when you go to a public school in K through 12, you have a teacher to student ratio of what one to 20 on a heavy on a very heavy public school, right? right. Uh, in, in school in New York, in schools in Georgia, they pretty much set it at 15, one to 15 or something, one teacher for every 15 students or something like that. But when you look at higher education, a freshman class can have 150 students. So oh, this student yeah. can have all the training they need, all the willpower they need, all the engagement and entertaining they need, but how are they supposed to help 150 students in a freshman class? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I mean, I, what, I would, what I would say is that I think that uh, that way of teaching is very antiquated and doesn't actually address the way that students learn or need to learn. Um, I mean, we found this out. So uh, I did a very large multinational study of teaching for the OECD. Um, and one of the things we found out is that like in 88% of classrooms in the eight countries we looked at, teachers stood in front of the room. Like you think about, you know, like they stood in front of the room and they talked to students who were all sitting in desks in little rows. Um, that's been a practice probably since the beginning of time. And it's right. probably not the kind of teaching we need, especially for what we expect students to be able to do now and in the future. Right. And that's the sage on stage attitude, right? I think mm -hmm. that's what we, we universally condemn, abhor, you know, worry about, but there's two two parts to this. And I think uh, I'll let Rohan kind of uh, jump in as well. So Rohan, how many, and I know that in GSU, they have things like flipped classroom, hybrid classrooms, mm -hmm. um, and also project-based classrooms. What type of methods did you see at GSU that are more innovative, if you will? Well, I mean, First of all, that definitely depends on the class to class. Like obviously for the core classes, you're not going to have um, like, oh, do something this or make like a presentation for this when it's like math 101 or English 101. It's more when you go into like what your 3,000, 4,000 level class mm -hmm. where you really get into what your major's about, where you'll start to see the change and really dive into your field. For me, it would, it's kind of two parts. Obviously, yes, one, one part's the teacher, but one part's also the student. And like, I was, it was happening to me. Like I was in person, full-time person and COVID happened, made the switch to online. And as you know, many students, when they mm -hmm. came to online, they, you know, Zoom University became the thing. And then, right. you know, people were like, they would make group chats and then they would try to sort of cheat their way through college. And yes, like I admit, I was one of those students. <laughs> but um, Don't tell me that. Yeah. 
it just um <laughs> yeah it just it depends like it yeah it depends on the uh the teacher because they have to now figure out oh everything's online i'm not seeing my students face to face because for so long the student the teacher has been used to being in the classroom face to face so now Absolutely. they have to adapt to a new way of learning and i get that does take some time i know there were many teachers that were like apologizing to me which is good like they know that oh this is all new to me so they were like mm -hmm. bear with me students we're all going to figure this out together and i really appreciated that too but then there was some teachers very they tried to use the same methods and it was just boring like right. i remember there were, there were some people that were just fall asleep in the online class and then if you right. people will have like pro be like mandatory so what's the question rohan i'm just kidding <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so what do you think is the answer here darlene especially i think rohan definitely brings up an important point which is we are we moved this aggressive mode from we stayed in sage on stage mentality for 400 500 years ever since the mm -hmm. you know bible school of i don't know 180 or whatever uh, that number is um since then we stayed on there but the pandemic pushed us to be moved from sage on stage to sage on zoom or sage Camera, on right. teams yeah so how did that uh allow you to do a different analysis a can you tell us like how did it change the schools or your data collection effort oh boy well in terms of changing our data collection effort that was huge but I, before i answer that i want to like address the so prior to the pandemic, we already had a situation where the majority of teachers, either K-12 or secondary or even post-secondary, um, were really focused on facts and routines and practice. Uh, we, we saw less of what we call sort of cognitively demanding things where you really make students think and describe and understand why is it done this way? How could it be done different kinds of teaching? So that when the pandemic happened, teachers stuck with what they typically did, which is like you said, run, you know, lecture, uh, ask really fact-based questions, boring, hard for students to pay attention in the in the sort of camera environment, video environment. So the pandemic really sort of brought to bear or put a spotlight on like what was wrong with the system before the pandemic? What was wrong with our teaching before? Um, I don't, I mean, I think we know, you know, that it, it highlighted these problems. Uh, certainly the data we're getting on the pandemic period and how much learning loss we saw um, illustrates that as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think we are up to a point where we have a good solution. Right. Um, or at least a solution that's scalable. But yeah. let me ask you this, Darlene. So I know you you are getting your data your data from other colleges, institutions. But I want to know if you guys are also getting student data because I remember back in my high school, I think it was like sophomore junior year. At the end of every semester, the teachers will be like, "Oh, can you guys fill out this small survey to know what you like about the class, what you like about me, what you hate, so they can mm -hmm. use that data to better themselves for future students and future teachings." Or is Rand doing anything like that? Or are they contacting students to get their input? So that way they can get multiple mindsets that just sticking on that basic foundational mindset. Yeah. All right. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that was a, one of the problems about the pandemic for us as a research organization that relies on data is that most of our studies 
are in classrooms, in schools, in universities, in colleges, where we have researchers on the ground, they're observing teaching, they're interviewing and surveying students and teachers and faculty members, we're doing focus groups. And when the pandemic happened and universities and schools shut down, all of a sudden, we don't have access to the data. The only data we're getting is sort of what we call secondary data. So data that a school reports or a teacher reports, um, which is not ideal because there's all kinds of issues with that data. Like our absolute preference is primary data, data that we collect ourselves. Um, so the pandemic really made that difficult. Uh, we had to really rethink some of the ways that we collected um, data. I mean, one of the, you know, obvious like duh kind of things is, you know, we had a study where we needed to interview a hundred teachers in six different states mm -hmm. in the middle of pandemic. You know, how do we do that? Well, of course it all went to video. Um, right. You know, but it did take a lot of thinking about how can we still collect primary data um, in this situation? There's some stuff we couldn't collect. I mean, we did not have good access to students throughout the pandemic. We just didn't. Um, you know, imagine, I mean, if you think about like parents and students, you know, the video was already intrusive into their lives mm -hmm. in their classroom. They certainly don't want a researcher, you know, looking into their ki kitchen tables and kitchens and family rooms as well mm -hmm. during that period. So we lost a lot of time there. And access. Yeah. So let's talk about your data analysis that you've gathered so far. I think it's very interesting uh, with the study that you guys have conducted. And I want to talk a little bit about that OECD TALIS video study. Listeners will post in show notes the study itself, the way to access the findings, if you will. And from what I understand, you guys um, all went to eight different countries include that, Chile, that include Chile, Colombia, England, Germany, Japan, Madrid, and Shanghai, and collected videos of 85 teachers teaching a quadratic equation to the Middle East students. And right. you have collected pre and poster and achievement in that like, so can you talk to us a little bit about the study itself on uh, why you pick quadratic equations and, and how the results vary by country if they have varied um and then we'll we'll bring in other additional questions as well sure um so the oecd which is the organization for economic cooperation and development is an organization of countries they tend to be middle high wealth countries and they do a lot of comparative studies so they hired rand they also hired um, the Education Testing Service and an organization called DIPF in Germany, which does research. And so the three of us um, combined to conduct this study for the OECD to try to understand teaching and particularly the relationship between what teachers do in their classroom and what the outcomes are for students. Uh, we picked quadratic equations because previous research on teaching showed that the content that one of the things that um, is correlated highly with student outcomes. Uh, so there are lots of, there are not a lot of, but there are some um, international measures like PISA where they collect student achievement data across lots of different countries. And one of the big differences in outcomes across countries is actually the content. So 
on the PISA test, they would ask questions on topics that students just never were taught in the country, in their country. And so therefore, of course, they can't answer the questions. So one of the reasons we picked quadratic equations is because it was one of the only topics that was caught, was taught across all eight countries. Hmm, you, you think, yeah, you think that mathematics is kind of a, a set of, you know, classic, like everybody's taught the same thing? No. Quadratic right. equations is the was one of the only topics taught across all eight countries. At a middle school level, I mean, there are other things yeah. like addition, subtraction, other things, but right, right, right. elementary school. Right, but we also wanted to pick um, a topic that would allow us to see dynamic teaching. Sure, you know, uh, you know, addition, subtraction, that kind of thing is going to be pretty boring, even yeah, yeah. with really, really good teachers. Sure. Whereas Quadratic equations, you could do all kinds of things. You could do applications, you could do functions, you can graph, you, could, you know. So we really mm -hmm. wanted a topic that allowed teachers to show like differences in teaching. And yeah. Yeah. Rohan, do you still remember your quadratic equations? <laughs> I I mean, not, math was not my strongest point. I started <laughs> off as comp side and I changed it my major immediately after I was like, after I took physics and I was like, okay, yeah, this ain't for me, chief. I'm always hungry to learn. So maybe I'll pick it up again, you know? Well, one of the, I mean, one of the surprising things. Um, so first of all, the first surprising thing about the study was we, we mapped the curricula across all of these countries. And literally there were two topics that were taught in middle school that were similar across all the countries, linear equations and quadratic. Okay. That was sort of mind blowing, you know, right there. Then when we carried out the study, you think, okay, quadratic equations, like everybody's teaching it. Obviously they must be teaching it in the same way. No, like one of the big findings is that across these eight countries, like there were so many different ways and so much variation in how teachers teach quadratic equations. It was so surprising, like the lack of consistency. And it's not just across countries, within countries. So even within a country, say Germany uh, or Mexico or Colombia, teacher A and teacher Z may teach quadratic equations completely differently in the same country. I think that's interesting because I think I do understand that you have picked a topic that can be that's taught the same way across all the all the countries. I understand that, but. So let's, before I kind of try to understand the background on why you picked it, let's understand the results. Like, what were the results like when you, did you try different instructional methods? Did you try different pre-training curriculum? Mm -hmm. Or did, were you just analyzing saying, how effective is the standard learning content delivery of quadratic equations across the country? What is the purpose of the study and what were the findings? Yeah, I mean, the purpose of the study was one, just to be able to describe teaching, because up to the this point, um, it's been a black box. We don't really, like I, I started talking about, we don't really understand um, good teaching and what that looks like in lots of different contexts. So that was a sort of primary goal. But the secondary goal was to see, like, are there certain teaching practices um, that make it more likely that students will achieve, that they'll have better outcomes? Um, and so in the study, we videotaped, as you said, we videotaped 85 teachers twice in every country. 
Um, and what we were looking for, we had a very standardized rubric. So we're looking for, did they use certain practices? Did they do certain techniques? Were they using certain forms of questioning? So we had this uh, rubric that was developed with the eight countries looking for what we thought would be indicators of quality teaching. And I think one of the really surprising things is that every single country um, the teaching was not very good, <laughs> to be honest. The teaching was not high quality. Even in places like Shanghai and Japan, mm -hmm. which we tend to think of as high excelling countries, right. there's a lot of room for improvement in those countries right. in terms of how teachers teach. Yeah, I mean, I think as much as we, we certainly, I think teaching, we all have seen it um, and there's a lot of big discourse on where teaching really occurs or learning really occurs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a idea that learning occurs in the classroom, but the learning occurs after the classroom. You know, the learning occurs in the homes, the learning occurs in the obviously the students' minds, the learning. So there's a combination of things that make learning more effective. And also the weird thing about this analysis or you know, trying to analyze saying, I'm just going to take quadratic express, uh, equations is that what about, what if the students have learned quadratic equations in a very organic fashion, the first six years of the instruction, and it was easy for them to grasp this topic. And then there are some countries yeah. where they were never introduced to quadratic equations and they jumped into it. Did you guys, were, were you able to take, take a look at what the background was, if, yeah. a, if a group of students, cohort of students are failing or not doing great, it's because of the supporting information, whether it is better instruction at home or you know, yeah. better buildup of math curriculum. Yep, absolutely. Um, so part of the design of the study was to be able to, what we call hold constant, the sort of background of the students, their previous instruction, their mm -hmm. previous uh, learning of quadratic equations. And so um, it's that's one of the really interesting things of the study is that when you don't control for all of those things, like when you just like look at the outcomes, you think that teaching, um, the teaching practices in all the countries made a difference. They improved student achievement. But yeah. when you take, when you look at the, the previous achievement. And when you look at their home environments and all of, you know, poverty and that kind of stuff, and you put that into looking at it, then the really interesting thing in the study was that achieve the practice didn't change achievement. What right. was driving the achievement in most of these countries is the student's background, not what was actually happening in the classroom. I agree. I think that is where the big, you know, I, I feel like genuinely, uh, Yes, as much as we can invest more trillions of dollars on teacher education, and which we should, obviously, we need to get better uh, training for teachers, we need to get better resources for teachers and professors, we need to have better instructional methods, I'm 100% all for it, but I think I feel like learning is where a person goes to, I don't know, a liposuction and removes some fat, and then when they go back home and gorge on chips for one month, all that will go away. So the point is, it has to be together. Mm -hmm. So yes, they have to get some therapy and the train teaching in the classroom, but they have to get the needed resources at home. Are there any things that Rand is doing to help us help the institutions think of them, think of learning as a holistic process rather than 
it begins in the classroom and ends in the classroom? Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we've got a bunch of work on sort of early um, childhood environments, uh, home visiting programs. Um, we do stuff on housing. You know, there, there's so many things that impact um, students' um, outcomes and, and children's outcomes over their lifetime. But I want to, I mean, I want to emphasize that it is true that the environment absolutely matters, but it is also true that teaching can correct for those environmental differences. And that's, I think, the problem is that right now it's not, but it could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Rohan, I'll let you jump in. Sure. So I, yeah, I love what you're doing and everything. And also, I should this before, but congratulations on the 75th anniversary. Yeah, thank you. But, and I do agree with what you're saying, but I also do want to add, I feel like teachers could also do a better job of understanding the student background and building that more emotional support level because oh. I because obviously like we see most teachers they just want to teach and get done but I, I found to be most effective if you actually build a bond with that professor and knowing that like oh I'm not here to teach you but I'm here to help you then the students will do better so I know I got in pretty close to some of my professors and like mm -hmm. the most difficult classes or at least I thought they were difficult maybe they're not difficult at all yeah but um maybe I'm just dumb no yeah. no no Absolutely. So one of the interesting things about the big international study is while teaching, uh, the teaching practices didn't affect achievement, that stuff you're talking about, like the connection between the student and the teacher absolutely mattered. I mean, that was really interesting. So um, when teachers did things in their classroom to make their students feel like they mattered, that they were important, when the teacher got to know them, when they sort of helped them and made them feel um, efficacious, if you will, they did in the sense that the students, you know, believed they could be get better at math, for example. So the more teachers were, you know, warm is not the right word, but the more teachers were engaged with their students at, at that kind of social and emotional level, the more the students believed I can do this math, mm -hmm. which we know is tied to actually math achievement. And I do know oh, yeah. that is easier in smaller institutions, smaller community colleges, and there's less students. So mm -hmm. with that being, what were the what are the challenges when a student and a teacher are trying to make a stronger bond, but it's like a bigger university and they don't have that much time? Are you guys like dealing with issues like that that you found in your research compared to bigger universities and smaller universities? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think large universities do have a disadvantage in, in that sense, you know, because... Uh, there's just more students per teacher, but it doesn't have to mean there isn't that kind of support. And, you know, you mentioned you graduated from GSU, like yes. one of the, so first of all, I have to say, I started out my university teaching career at Georgia State. Uh, oh. Yeah. So, um, and one of the things I point out about Georgia State is that they have one of the best data-driven systems for making sure students don't, don't fall through the cracks. Like they have gotten, you know, sort of uh, national spotlight acclaim because of their ability to help students persist. And it's not that, you know, their instructors do try to have that relationship, but they recognize as a university that that's really hard. And so they have put in place this data system that throws up all these flags and alerts. A student misses a test. If a student misses a test, that's usually a red flag that something's wrong. And Georgia State flags it, and then they have a, a team of people who are then contact that student and say, hey, we saw you miss this test, what's going on? And so they end up 
like creating that system of emotional support, which then has them have more of their students persist and graduate from college. Yeah, I did see the research as well on their commitment and investment in student success. Rohan, um, again, I think uh, Darlene is talking about the student advisors mm -hmm. and success mm -hmm. coaches. What was your experience uh, while at Georgia State uh, with those coaches, if you will? Well, when I definitely came to booking advisement schedules and all that, I found that to be very helpful because they literally build a graduation path for you and give you recommendations right. like I should take these classes this semester because it's and obviously they're flexible so you can change it I had to change mine so just knowing that like there is a path for you to mm -hmm. me that makes a big difference because pe most people just go in there blinded and you know undecided about what they want to do or people changing their major halfway through like I did but just knowing that there is a path for you this builds that confidence to know that to let the advisor to the student know that it's going to be okay you're going to graduate you're going to get your degree you're going to do amazing and that's just like the basic foundation just to know that there is an end goal and yeah. you're not right. doing this blindly that's and right. i found to be very helpful and then obviously another part of it is like the student just has to be committed to the goal they can't just be like oh the goal's already set and it's going to happen no they got to put in the work they got again the good grade so it's like a two-way street essentially Oh, absolutely. But just the fact that Georgia State has put in those pathways and mm -hmm. put in that it, it's unfortunately unusual in the university environment uh, so far, although I think more universities are coming online with it. But Georgia State was really out front on that. Not even with that, they are also good at like notifying a student when the GPA lowers, yeah. like we have like our overall academic GPA and then the semester GPA. So they'll notify a student being like, oh, we know your GPA is lower we recommend you you're restricted to only taking 12 credit hours or 13 credit hours instead of standard 15 credit hours so Make you can sure. build it back up so you're not overloading yourself too so that i found that to be um very good most people thought about it in like a bad way because they were like oh i'm not gonna pass i'm so dumb but like i they just have to broaden their mindset so the way you're thinking about it also makes a big difference as well yeah yeah exactly it goes two ways but i i'm impressed by the way that they've built up those kind of ways to like support students as they go through well this is great i mean darlene i, I know that we can talk for hours together on <laughs> how we can improve education how we can take it to the next level but i i do think that rohan's summary and also your understanding of gsu kind of brings home this dichotomy between how K through two K through twelve schools operate, where they have a homeroom teacher that is fully responsible for the cohort of kids. Um, when compared to a university, where the professor might be teaching 150 students, but there is an entire infrastructure to support if mm -hmm. they do it properly. So, um, is what is Rand Corporation doing to help universities and K through twelve institutions realize the full value of their investments? And also, while we are talking about it, if everybody follows your data-driven model, where do you see higher education going and how, what can be excited about? Oh, gosh, we could spend like another, you know, many hours talking about the future of higher education for sure. Um, but yeah, we are doing a lot of work uh, in states with state systems on helping them essentially create pathways like Rowan was talking about. But it across many different parts of their system. So we've been working in Ohio for a long time with them for a few years um, on creating pathways. So there's Ohio's thinking about it a little different than Georgia State because they're thinking about it at a system level where like 
they have different credentials that are stacked. This has become a thing where, you know, you break up a sort of degree into little bits and that way you help students sort of stay on a path because they understand, okay, if I do this six week course, then the next one is this one. And if I do that one, then it'll lead to this. And so it makes it much easier for students to understand, you know, how they get to the outcome that they want. And, and along the way, even, even if they, for some reason, don't finish, it also helps them figure out like where in the job market do these sets of skills and credentials place me so that I can right. get the best job I can. Um, so yeah, we're doing work like that in multiple states. Uh, we have a, you know, we have probably a hundred different studies going on at any one time. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there's probably not very many questions about education that, we, that we're not looking at at the moment. Well, I know that we are coming, hitting close to the wrapping up the episode. Darlene, are there any questions we should have asked that we forgot to ask in our montage about higher education, K through 12, and uh, your study? What are the questions that we forgot to ask you on this episode? Are there oh any my questions? Oh my God, there's probably a ton, but I think the biggest one that I think is the connection between K-12 and the higher ed system. You know, we've been trying this for a long time. A lot of people talk about P-12 or P-20 uh, as a way to sort of connect them. But I think we've got, we've got a couple of disconnects in the systems. One is a disconnect between K-12 and higher ed. And then the other disconnect is between both K-12, higher ed, and the labor market. Um, and so I think, you know, those three sort of systems, if you will, need to be in much better alignment. And we're starting to talk about it. We've been trying it for a long time, but we need to get better at that to make sure that Students mm -hmm. have many pathways to success and not just one. Yeah, building that bridge between um, a high school student in college and a college student in work is definitely the pipeline that will fix the American, you know, employment crisis. Not an unemployment crisis. That as even though we talk about a lot of unemployment, the real issue that at least for developing nations like America has is that there's a lot of STEM jobs that are. Yeah. Under unfilled. under unfilled, and we need a better pipeline from high kids or dwell to college, high school on that. And I'm hoping that Rand Corporation can help uh, fix that problem. We're certainly trying. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, um, Darlene, I know that we can speak for hours together. We'll definitely invite you for more in-depth conversation on a couple of these topics. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Uh, listeners, we will post the show notes with all the links. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Everything is a service. Whether it's finding ways to help students reach their goals within higher education, sharing medical records to patients quickly and securely, informing residential customers of an impending outage, or communicating with remote satellites thousands of miles apart. All of it requires data, integration, and communication. At End2End, we provide services that make all of these possibilities realities. And we make it faster, simpler, secure, and easier. Because we believe everything is a service, and bringing everything together is how we can help you innovate and change the world.